Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is Military Murder, a show where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. Hi, everyone. I hope this episode finds you well. I just wanted to give you a heads up that my voice sounds really crappy. I'm under the weather, but I wanted to get on the mic to record this episode for you. All right, listen, for some of you, it's been two weeks since we've met. For others, it's only been one week because last week I released a bonus episode that left my jaw on the floor. I know, I know, I say that about every single case, but it's true. Last week's bonus episode involved a person who believed that God could forgive murder because it's a one-time crime, but the same person believed that God could not forgive divorce. What? I seriously cannot make this stuff up, y'all. If you're not already supporting the show through Patreon or Apple Premium, consider signing up today. You can sign up for just $4.99 today and you will immediately get access to over 30 episodes, each one more shocking than the rest. All right, last week as I was preparing for today's case, I had a completely different case ready to go. But then as I was perusing listener suggested cases, I found the one, the one I will tell you about today. And well, here we are. Join me today as I tell you the tragic story of 19-year-old David Heinrich. This story is out of Ohio, but it has connections to Schofield Barracks in Hawaii. Now, let's dig in. In the early 2000s, Christina Eichelberger was like most military spouses. Her soldier spouse, Sean Cleland, swept her off her feet made her believe she was the most wonderful person in the world, because she probably was, and promised that this military life was only temporary and that one day it would all be rainbows and butterflies. But listen, all fairy tales must come to an end. Christina grew up Mormon, so she had a very strict upbringing. So when she was 18 and met and married Sean, her soldier, she thought she had won the lottery. They got married in Hawaii, where Sean was stationed at the time, and life there felt like a continuous honeymoon. I found one article that specifically said that Sean was stationed at Schofield Barracks. Sean had always wanted to be in the military. His family described that he spoke about it for years, likely wanting to follow in his father and grandfather's footsteps, and he seemed to love the army. However, now that he was married, he and his new bride spent a lot of time apart because of military duties, and Christina wanted the hustle and bustle of military life to stop. Sean promised that the military was only temporary, but as the years went by, Sean re-upped his military contract and the cycle continued. After Hawaii, the couple moved to Sean's Ohio hometown of Brunswick and Christina put the pressure on Sean to leave the military. She kind of gave him an ultimatum, the military or us. Sean appeared to be stuck between a rock and a hard place. He seemed to want to stay in his marriage, but he loved the military. However, as reported by ABC News, Sean did leave active duty and tried life in the civilian world. But Sean didn't completely leave the military. He basically just transferred to the National Guard. 
And while in the guard, he was shipped off to do a tour in Italy for a bit. So even though he wasn't active duty, he was still pretty much in the thick of military life. When he wasn't doing guard things, he was in Brunswick, Ohio, doing odd jobs here and there. And after losing two jobs back to back, Sean realized he was military through and through. He then left Ohio, headed to Texas to return to active duty military life to become a medic. At this point in their marriage, Christina decided enough was enough and she stayed in Ohio where she worked as a bartender. The couple still communicated. They were married after all. And at one point, Christina decided she wanted to give her marriage the good old college try. She flew to Texas to be with Sean. And while she was in Texas, she made her attempts to be romantic. She bought lingerie. She tried to romance him. But she felt in her heart that it was over. Sean didn't even seem a little bit interested, and Christina began to suspect that Sean may have found someone else. Christina decided she tried her best and it was time to move on. And with what I'm assuming is a pure sadness in her heart, Christina returned to Ohio. After his training, Sean was stationed in Hawaii again, but this time he was with the 25th Infantry Division, 3rd Brigade Combat Team. And now the distance between Christina and Sean was even greater. The time difference, the distance, it was all a recipe for disaster. And at least by this point, Christina knew it was over. When Christina returned to Ohio, she started a friendship with one of her next door neighbors. It was a young man who was 19 years old. His name was David Heinrich and he worked at Starbucks. Eventually, the friendship turned into a relationship and David Heinrich, who just lived right down the hallway, ended up moving in and basically being her live-in boyfriend. He was her roommate. Of course, now that Christina was ready to close the chapter of her life with Sean and begin a new one with David, who comes back into the picture? You guessed it, Sean. He went from cold to hot real quick, calling Christina off the hook. It is reported that he called her 87 times in a 30-minute window one time. At this point, Christina was like, dude, calm down. But for three weeks straight in the fall of 2005, ABC News reported that Sean called and tried to win her back constantly. And then one day at the end of September 2005, Sean just stopped contacting Christina like bloop, the calls just ended. I am sure that Christina felt a sense of relief, but at the same time, she must have been curious. What happened? Where did he go? Is that it? But life continued. On October 1st, 2005, just two days of silence from her obsessed estranged husband, Christina was in bed with David, her new boo, when they woke up late, like a little bit after noon. Christina felt something was off about that day, but at some point she left for work at the bar. And when she returned home from work in the early morning hours of October 2nd, 2005, that's when Christina realized that the uneasiness she felt earlier in the day was just a premonition. As Christina walked into her apartment, she turned the lights on and walked into the living room and that's when she found David, her boyfriend, dead. He appeared to be hanging from a noose around his neck. It was a frightful sight. As Christina inventoried the scene quickly, she looked at David's hand and right there was a broken cigarette. When she looked in his left hand, there was a typewritten note. The order of events is unclear to me, the researcher, but the note read, quote, Dear Christina, I don't love you. You need to go back to your husband, end quote. The note was then signed, like the whole note was typewritten except for the name, and it was signed Dave. Now, this was odd to Christina because David didn't go by Dave and he certainly wouldn't sign a letter, Dave. Christina cut off the noose. She ran to her neighbor's house and asked them to call 911 as she returned to her house to a now unresponsive David. 
Through the police radios, David's name was being aired. It was unclear what they were saying, but Ketera Gray reported for ABC News that just as the police chatter mentioned David's name, David's father, who was an avid police radio listener, was like, what the hell? Why is my son's name being talked about on the police radio? Earlier that night, David had asked his dad for a ride to Starbucks, which was where he worked, and it was a little bit out of character for David to ask his dad for a ride. By now, it was well after 2 a.m., but David's dad showed up to his son's apartment complex, and that's when police told him that David was dead. But this didn't make any sense to anyone. How did he die? As soon as police arrived at the scene, Christina had quite the idea who could have killed David. You see, earlier in the day, unbeknownst to Christina, her estranged husband had arrived at the Cleveland Hopkins International Airport after he went AWOL from its post in Hawaii. While Christina was at work, David called Christina to tell her that Sean was at her house ringing the doorbell. David then called the police and the police arrived at the house and told Sean Cleveland to beat it. Apparently, Sean had left for long enough to get the cops off his back. Well, when Christina reminded police of this, they were shook. Christina was like, listen, David did not commit suicide because you see anyone looking in, they might consider that David's death was a suicide. Additionally, though, Christina noted that the knot in the noose that was tied around David's neck was very distinct, and she remembered that Sean had a very distinct way of tying knots. You see, while they were still living together and married, he used to tie his laundry bag drawstrings in a particular way to prevent the other soldiers from stealing his items. Police immediately took off to search for Sean, and they found him exactly where Christina told them he'd be, at the airport. Yup. Not looking too good for this guy. Well, well, well. When police tracked Sean at the airport, the charmer, who was allegedly trying to win his wife back, was sending text messages to his new boo, who, get this, he was intending to propose to. What in the world? Listen, that's military people for you. And don't come at me for that comment because we all know it's true. Live in this military world long enough and you know people hate being single because then they have to deal with their own demons and what narcissist wants to deal with themselves? Huh. They brought Sean in for questioning, and when they searched his bag, they found scandalous pictures of Christina. The thing about these pictures is that they were the same pictures found near David's body. By 6 a.m., Sean was being interrogated, and he waived his right to an attorney. At first, he said he was in Ohio to try to win his wife back, and that after he went to her job and stayed there for a couple of hours, he had a few beers. He then drove around and around and around and that's it. He didn't do anything else. But when detectives were like, that's interesting that that's all you did considering your wife's boyfriend is dead. Well, Sean put his hands in his head and confessed that it was he who killed David by strangulation. He said that before David got home from work, he, meaning Sean, had broken into the apartment and was looking through the bedroom. When he was in the bedroom, he discovered explicit pictures of Christina. And according to his confession, it was the pictures of Christina that sent him over the edge. He couldn't imagine his wife with another man. By 6.48 a.m., Sean was on his way to signing his confession to police. And when he was allowed to make his one phone call, Sean called his father. His father was a sergeant for a nearby sheriff's office. During the call, Sean simply said, I killed a guy. I killed him. 
Well, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, right? Seems like a pretty open and shut case, except it wasn't. While Sean initially entered a not guilty plea, after loads of evidence was exchanged and turned over to his attorney, Sean entered into a plea agreement with the state of Ohio. A few weeks before the judge was scheduled to sentence him in July of 2005, however, Sean attempted to recant his confession and back down from his guilty plea. He was like, listen here, it wasn't me, I was set up. Okay, tell me more. ABC News reported that Sean's new story was that he had been set up that night and that while he was present for David's attack, it was another unknown perpetrator who attacked David. Sean said, quote, he basically made me drive to the apartment, had me get out and had his hand in the pocket with the gun that he had. When David Heinrich came home, the man jumped up, grabbed him, slammed the door and attacked him and eventually killed him, end quote. The judge heard Sean's new claim and was like, nah, dog, we ain't doing this today. And with that, the judge did not allow Sean to withdraw his guilty plea with a plea agreement, I might add, which had already been accepted by that point. The plea agreement indicated that Sean would plead guilty to aggravated murder by prior calculation and design, kidnapping and aggravated burglary. In exchange for the plea, the state agreed to recommend parole after 30 years and dismissed the remaining four charges in connection to the murder. With a guilty plea firmly in place, sentencing was held in the summer of 2006. At the sentencing hearing, David's father asked the judge for a moment of silence for his son, the victim, David Heinrich. He specifically asked for 50 seconds of silence. All that could be heard during that moment of silence that was just shy of a minute was David's family's sobs. With that, the judge sentenced Sean to life in prison with parole eligibility after 25 years. Sean was also sentenced to three years in prison on two lesser charges to run simultaneously, but in addition to the life term. So real quick, I was reading an article about this case and discovered that even after Sean was arrested for David's murder, he continued to hold on to his relationship with his tech school girlfriend. No kidding, he wrote her from prison saying, quote, you are everything I hoped for my whole life. You are everything I need, end quote. He even told her he was planning to propose to her in December of 2005. What? But wait, when that girlfriend gave him the boot, well, Sean Cleland found another whole ass girlfriend while he was in prison. I'm sorry, what? Like, I'm not sure about you guys, but me and my friend, we always look at each other and we wonder, how come we are still single, but all these maggots in prison for murder are getting dates? Anyway. With that, the story should be over, right? But it wasn't, because there was an interesting appeal that would have this entire case thrown out the window on a technicality. While Sean filed various reasons for appeal, the appellate court hung onto one reason in order to throw out the case. The appellate court found that the trial judge failed to apprise Sean of the mandatory terms of post-release control during the plea hearing. And with that, a new trial was ordered, meaning the whole old trial was booted. While many people think that retrials are kind of a done deal, I always advise people to never ever sleep on a retrial because it could be a win or it could be a loss. 
Usually, many of the players are different, and at the first trial, the prosecution at least shows almost all of their cards, so they tend to go into retrial without anything new to give. Well, at his second bite at the apple, Sean decided he was not going to plead guilty, and instead, he would take his chances with a jury. And it's at this trial that the world, or at least the victims in this case, got to hear more about how manipulative Sean was and what ultimately led to David's unnecessary death. As I mentioned, leading up to David's death, once Sean found out his estranged wife had moved on, he attempted to, quote, win her back. At one point, Sean asked Christina if she had been intimate with David, and when she responded yes, Sean said, that's all I need to know. Sean then allegedly called David's job anonymously and asked where David lived. He then called Christina's leasing office to find out who else was on the lease with her. It's unclear if any of those attempts led Sean to discovering that David was actually living with Christina, but it was then that Sean booked a flight from Hawaii to Ohio without the Army's permission, which in essence made him AWOL, which is absent without leave. When Sean arrived in Ohio, he showed up at the Alamo rental car place and he was trying to pick up his reservation. When the Alamo employee informed him that there was no reservation under his name, Sean lost his crap and the employee described him as volatile. Sean eventually got his rental car. He then called Christina, but he didn't mention that he was calling from Ohio. So that was that. Sean then made his way to the store where he purchased an air gun, BBs, a hunting knife, binoculars, and cigarettes. Then Sean showed up at Christina's house when she wasn't home, but David was there. That's when David called the cops. When the cops showed up, Sean actually showed them his actual ID. I mean, I'm not sure what else he could have shown, but he did lie about his relationship to Christina. When the police told him to leave, he did, and Sean went straight to Christina's job. At the bar, Sean told Christina he came to pick her up and bring her back to Hawaii, and he said he wouldn't be leaving without her. Sean sat at a table or at a bar or whatever, and he drank for several hours. While there, he asked Christina, hey, listen, would you come with me to Hawaii if David disappeared? Christina thought Sean was insane, but she didn't want him to leave the bar because that way she could keep track of him. Throughout the few hours that Sean was at the bar, he tried his hardest to win his wife back. He told her that he was there spontaneously to win her back. Meanwhile, everyone who worked with Christina knew that he'd been harassing her and that she really wanted him to just leave her alone. Some workers caught on that Sean wasn't acting right that night. He looked, I don't know, irritable. Someone even said he looked like he had the devil in his eyes. Eventually, Sean left the bar and Christina had no clue where he went. Meanwhile, David was working his 6 to 11.30 p.m. shift and not realizing that he'd soon lose his life to a lunatic. That night, as David clocked out at Starbucks, he was used to walking to and from work because it was only like a 10-minute walk to his house. But earlier that day, David had asked his dad to take him to work. So at the end of his shift, still feeling uneasy, David asked a coworker for a ride, slightly joking, saying he wanted a ride because he didn't want to get jumped. Before he left, David's co-workers asked him to join him for a quick Applebee's trip after work just to hang out. But everything from earlier in the day seemed to be weighing on David, and he declined. David arrived home at about 11.45 p.m. His co-worker who dropped him off, she was the last one to see him alive. 
Sadly, David must have been killed almost immediately upon entering the apartment because Christina arrived home at 12.30 a.m. and that's when she found David on the futon. He was unconscious with a noose around his neck. As Christina entered her apartment before she found David's body, she saw that the apartment was kind of messy. There were dishes in the sink, cigarette butts everywhere, and there was this odd note on the dry erase board on the fridge. The note read, Christina, you're beautiful. I missed you today. I'm most likely on the futon watching TV. You need to walk around the table and kiss me now. Officer testified that when they arrived on the scene, Christina was hysterical and she was sure to let them know that Sean was likely responsible. But she told them they had to act quick because he had a flight to Hawaii that morning. While canvassing the area, officers interviewed two neighbors who actually recalled seeing a man who looked like Sean walking on the apartment rooftop just before midnight. When police tracked Sean's whereabouts between 11.45 p.m. and 12.30 a.m., they discovered that he stopped for gas at 12.14 a.m. and drove straight to the airport. At the airport, he waited to check in, and in the meantime, he texted his little girlfriend who was on vacation in Alaska. Sean had met his new girlfriend at tech school in Texas, and even though she lived in the middle of the U.S. somewhere, they kept in contact daily after splitting ways and even talked about getting married. Over the text messages just after midnight on October 2nd, Sean jokingly asked his girlfriend where she would get her wedding gown from. He told her how much he missed her and how he had been thinking about her all day. Meanwhile, the girlfriend jokingly said, your divorce is only a minor issue. By 3 a.m., police had caught up with Sean, who was at the airport asleep in the waiting area. During his recorded confession to police, the jury heard that Sean confessed that he typed the fake suicide note in Hawaii, but he alleged it was written just to spook David. He also confessed he broke into Christina and David's apartment, strangled David, and staged the scene to look like a suicide. Well, once the prosecution rested, Sean did what Sean does. He took the stand in his own defense. And this is where Sean, no kidding and with a straight face, told the jury it wasn't him. According to an appellate opinion, Sean testified that a masked man was lying in wait for him in his rental car when he left the bar where Christina worked. The man wore a mask the entire time. He couldn't describe him initially, but for the first time, Sean described the man at trial. Sean testified that the man forced him to drive to a lake where he removed him from the car, secured his wrists behind his head with tape, and then threatened his young niece if Sean refused to cooperate with him by telling the police what he was told to say. The masked man then drove him back to Brunswick, parked in an adjacent complex, and walked with Sean to David's apartment building. Sean testified that once they were inside David's apartment, the man taped his wrists and ankles and then waited for David to arrive. When David walked in from work, the stranger strangled David, staged the suicide scene, and told Sean to take the blame. Okay, y'all, what are your thoughts on this? Does this make any sense at all? I actually feel like his defense attorney should have had a sanity check on his client because this does not make any sense. What are the odds? In fact, it sounds like Sean is describing a scene where the devil made him do it. Well, the jury did not buy Sean's story and they found him guilty of all charges. And he was sentenced by the same judge who sentenced him the first time, but this time he was sentenced 
to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 30 years. Sean was sentenced to two additional five-year terms to be served simultaneously, but after his life sentence, so basically 35 years. However, due to a change in the Ohio case law, there was a shift in the law and two of the crimes that Sean was convicted of committing were merged for sentencing purposes. So that basically means that one of the five-year sentences was erased. And well, I checked the Ohio inmate tracker and found that Sean M. Cleland is still incarcerated in Ohio. He is specifically incarcerated at the Mansfield Correctional Institution. It says his effective sentence date is 2012, but I can almost guarantee he has been in jail since 2005. But regardless what I think, the website says he is first eligible for parole in 2040, which is consistent with 35 years after he was imprisoned. When Judge Kimbler was sentencing Sean during the first sentencing hearing, he specifically said, quote, The court believes that people can be redeemed. I hope at some point Mr. Cleland understands the agony he has caused other people, end quote. David Heinreich was remembered by his mother at Sean's first sentencing hearing. Of her son, Gloria Glancy said that not a day goes by that she doesn't dwell on the memory of her son's death. She remembered him as a beautiful child that she loved. She said he was just starting to live his life and she was proud of the man he was becoming. All right, everyone, if you aren't already subscribed to the podcast, be sure to subscribe by clicking the plus symbol wherever you're listening. It's completely free, and this way you never miss an episode. My sources for this episode include various appellate court opinions and judgments and articles published by ABC News, thepostnewspaper.com, and clevescene.com. Military Murder is a Mama Margot production. This episode's newest Patreon assistant producers are Candy, Lynn, and Megan. The theme music was created by Tyops. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of, so remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week, and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next time. Working on our podcast.